In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, Paul writes, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That could serve as the big idea of this morning's sermon. Christ suffered, and Christ suffered according to the Scriptures. As we continue in our series in John's Gospel this morning, we're looking again at chapter 19, specifically verses 1 to 37 that I just read for you, with that big idea in mind, that Christ suffered, and Christ suffered according to the Scriptures. So the sermon this morning will consist of two points, and then we'll make some application. First, the sufferings of Christ. Second, the sufferings of Christ according to the Scriptures. So let's jump right in with that first point. With that first point an examination of what John tells us about the sufferings of Christ. First, we read in chapter 19 and verse 1, simply that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And as you know, last week I preached again on the kingship of Jesus from a, pas- from a passage that was basically... It was some some. Uh, it was basically the first half of what I'm preaching on today, and you might have expected me to talk about the sufferings of Christ last week, but it's so interesting, it's so fascinating that there's such a theme of the kingship of Jesus, and John passes over with like a word, you know. Then Pilate flogged Jesus, and then we come to the actual crucifixion. So there they crucified Jesus, and it's very matter of fact and very brief. His readers would have been very familiar with what the flogging was and what crucifixion was. And so John's not belaboring that point. What he's drawing out is the theological significance of what is happening. And that's his emphasis, which is why I presented that to you first last week. But today we actually look at the sufferings of Christ. And we read, as I said in verse 1, that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. D.A. Carson explains that Quote, flogging administered by the Romans could take three forms. You'll have to pardon my Latin here. The fustigatio, a less severe beating needed out for relatively light offenses. The flagellatio, a brutal flogging administered to criminals whose offenses were more serious. And the verberatio, the most terrible scourging of all. And one that was always associated with other punishments including crucifixion. So which of these was applied to Jesus in John chapter 19 and verse 1? Since Pilate hadn't yet pronounced formal sentence upon Jesus and was still trying to release him after the fact of his flogging recorded for us in chapter 19 and verse 1, it is most likely that it was just the first and least severe fustigatio. And of course I say just a little bit tongue-in-cheek because even that would have been quite brutal. In this case, it probably was the least severe of those three, the fustigatio. However, Matthew and Mark indicate that there was scourging and the same sort of mocking recorded for us in John chapter 19, verses 2 and 3, where they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and so forth. Matthew and Mark tell us that scourging and that same sort of mocking happened after the formal sentence. 
So either John's chronology is out of sync with Matthew and Mark, and we have an interpretive difficulty before us in harmonizing the two accounts and figuring out when did the scourging and the mocking occur, or Matthew and Mark are referring to one event and John is referring to another event. And I believe that that is actually the case, that Matthew and Mark on the one hand and John on the other are in fact referring to two different events. Since and a significant emphasis in this section of John's Gospel is the chronology of what's happening as it relates to Pilate's attempts to release Jesus. It seems most likely to me then that Jesus receives here in John 19 and verse 1 the least severe of the three beatings and then undergoes the psychological torment of the soldiers mocking and ridiculing him in verses 2 and 3 even as they continue to punish him physically with blows and with this crown of thorns that they twisted for him. After this, John chapter 19, verses 4 and 5 indicate to us, Pilate brings Jesus out again before the crowd, presumably in an attempt to elicit pity from the crowd, seeing a man so brutalized. If you've ever seen the movie Braveheart, which is loosely based on historical events, even the English crowd at the end of Braveheart cried out mercy on behalf of the Scottish rebel William Wallace when they beheld his suffering firsthand. He would not cry out mercy for himself, but the crowd, seeing the agony that he was going through, started crying out mercy. You see, while soldiers are often desensitized to violence, I mean, this was all in a day's work for these Roman soldiers. The average person is not so callous, usually, to the sufferings of others. And often, witnessing the sufferings of others firsthand moves us to compassion and to sympathy. Pilate knows this, and in the last-ditch effort to release an innocent man, it seems that he brought out Jesus having been beaten, having had a crown of thorns twisted on his head, having been draped in a mock kingly robe, brings him out to elicit pity before the crowd and says, Behold the man. And he wants this crowd here to cry out on his behalf, mercy, the way that the English crowd cried out mercy on behalf of William Wallace in that dramatic closing scene of Braveheart. Pilate wants to release Jesus. We've seen that over the last couple of weeks. And so it seems he has him beaten with this fustigatio. He has him mocked and ridiculed, his crown of thorns twisted and his robe put on. And he lets the soldiers do this. And then he presents this brutalized Jesus, hoping that the chief priests will be like, okay, good. We've been vindicated. Jesus has been here, shown to be nothing. He's, been, he's experienced the disapproval of Rome. He's experienced the condemnation of the mob. Let's move on with life. Jesus can go free. Poses no threat to the chief priests. Poses no threat to Rome. It seems to me 
That's what's happening here in the first five verses. But then in verse 6, no such thing happens. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Jesus now faces utter rejection and aloneness. He finds no advocate in Pilate, who, humanly speaking, is the only one with authority to defy the crowd and have Jesus released. None of the Roman soldiers could insist that Jesus be released. At this point, Jesus, having been turned over to Pilate, could not even be set free by the chief priests against the will of Pilate. If Pilate wanted to condemn him, at this point, the chief priests could not set him free. Pilate is the one here who, humanly speaking, though as Jesus says, he would have no authority at all if it wasn't given him from above. Humanly speaking, Pilate is the only one that can overrule the chief priests and the mob and set Jesus free. But Jesus suffers this fustigatio and this humiliating treatment, this psychological torment. Like, all, like I don't say this at all, joking but this would be the sort of thing that would give you PTSD like after going through a group being beaten by a group of men mocking you and ridiculing you and twisting on your head a crown of thorns and putting on a purple robe this is intense psychological suffering as well as intense physical suffering but after undergoing all of this Jesus finds no advocate in Pilate when the crowds cry out, crucify him. Pilate's not willing to say no. Enough has been done. Set him free. Pilate hands them over to his will, or to the will of the crowd, rather. And Jesus finds no sympathy from his own people, the Jews, who answer Pilate in verse 7. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die. Because he has made himself the Son of God. This scene before us here is almost identical to John chapter 1. Not in word, but in theme. In the beginning was the word. John chapter 1 and verse 1 starts this gospel account. And the word was with God and the word was God and we read later in the chapter he came unto his own but his own received him not Pilate would be willing he realized to release Jesus at this juncture if Jesus own were willing to receive him but alas he came unto his own and his own receives him not. Jesus actually was the Son of God, this Word who was with God and was God. Jesus came to the Jewish people as a Jew himself. This is what it means by he came unto his own. Salvation is from the Jews, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, 
And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, according to Romans chapter 9. But in response to this incredible divine intervention on their behalf, as the Word, who in the beginning was with God and was God, becomes flesh to dwell among them, the Jews cry out, Crucify Him. Crucify Him. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. We can almost hear Jesus' inner thoughts at this moment. He had said it earlier, not many days before, out loud, explicitly. And here, surely, He was thinking along the same lines. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together. As a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. Though John doesn't record it, Matthew and Mark seem to indicate that now, as Pilate passes formal sentence in verse 16, we read, Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. It seems that now, according to Matthew and Mark, Jesus is beaten again. It says, having scourged him, he delivered him over to them to be crucified. In Matthew and Mark. This time, it's not the fustigatio. It's not the flagellatio. It's the worst of the three. It's the verberatio. In which a multi-stranded whip embedded with sharp scraps of metal, glass, and bone peel the skin and flesh off a man's skeleton. Causing severe bleeding, of course, but apparently at times even exposing internal organs and severing muscles altogether. And the mocking continues, right? We need the strongest argument that there's not two different scourgings, but only one is is the similarity of them both. Well, why would it happen twice? Well, I'm telling you why it would happen twice. And remember that it was only, you know, probably minutes apart. So if they were mocking him as the king of the Jews a few minutes ago, and then he's brought out and behold the man and the mob shouts, crucify him, crucify him. And then Jesus is sent back in there to them, but now under the sentence of crucifixion. Why would they not just continue doing exactly what they have been doing? And so I think there's no compelling case that there's only one scourging. I think he receives the least severe, and he's brought out to elicit pity from the crowd. Finds none, and he's sent back in to the soldiers, who continue their mocking. This time is the verberatio, this intense suffering. Jesus hears mere men, the King of kings and Lord of lords, hears mere men continuing to mock. Hail, King of the Jews. And Jesus feels their fists and their boots further pulverizing his already agonizing 
flesh. Imagine carrying your own cross after such a beating, as John records here in verse 17 that Jesus did. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now, interestingly here, we know that at some point Jesus could no longer carry his own cross. And it's not because he wasn't a very strong guy. It's not because he was an effeminate fellow like the church has painted him in our artwork over the last 2,000 years. It's because he just experienced probably the fustigatio and the verberatio. And probably because he has muscles that are literally severed. And he just can't do it. And so Simon of Cyrene helps him. But he leaves here carrying his own cross. After all this, he's expected. The cross is put on him to carry his cross, you know, to go be crucified. And then when they arrive, they nail Jesus to the cross. And the soldiers divide up Jesus' garments among themselves. And they gamble for Jesus' tunic, demonstrating that they value it. Well, Jesus hangs on a cross after having been mocked and beaten by them, demonstrating that they do not value Him. Jesus is crucified between two criminals, numbered with the transgressors. The suffering continues for a time, and then Jesus says in verse 30, it is finished. And John tells us that Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Was this statement, it is finished, a statement of relief as Jesus felt himself dying? Glad that his suffering would soon be over, Jesus in relief states it is finished and just fizzles out. Let's look again at the sufferings of Christ, but let us now examine the sufferings of Christ according to the Scriptures. Notice how many times here in John chapter 19, you probably heard it when I was reading the whole passage aloud before the sermon. Notice how many times here in John chapter 19 that we read something like that the Scripture might be fulfilled. In verse 24, this was to fulfill the Scripture. In verse 28, Jesus said to fulfill the Scripture. In verse 36, these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. In verse 37, and again, another Scripture says. Obviously, John wants us to see Jesus' death not as an accident, nor as a triumph of evil over good. A tragedy or a horror story, as it were. Now, John wants us to see the events unfolding in John chapter 19 as unfolding according to the Scripture. He wants to emphasize that point. Which is really just another way of saying according to God's plan. Isn't it? For it is God who, through the pens of men, is the ultimate author of Scripture. And it is God who brings, then, the prophecies of Scripture to pass. 
The death of Christ was no accident. But Christ went as it had been foretold that He would. Christ went as it had been predestined and foreordained that He would. It was so certain that He is called in the book of Revelation, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was as good as done way back then. Before Adam even sinned. The lamb was as good as slain. Now, so we don't misunderstand, I emphasize this point regularly because it's such a prevalent misconception. The son laid down his life willingly and freely. This is not the father getting the son to do something that the son doesn't want to do. This is our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together in harmony, in unity, and in conjunction. So if I say something, the Father did this, or the God did this, or Jesus did this, I'm not pitting them against one another. Back to the main point. John tells us specifically that the gambling of the soldiers for his tunic and the division of the rest of Jesus' garments is a fulfillment of John or of Psalm 22 at verse 18 which says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. That's the first thing specifically that John tells us happened, according to the scripture. John also tells us in verse 28, that Jesus' statement, I thirst, was to fulfill the scripture. He tells us that the preservation of Jesus' bones intact is the fulfillment of the Scripture. And that piercing Him with the spear was the fulfillment of the Scripture. These are recorded in chapter 19, verses 36 and 37. Now one of those prophecies, the first of those prophecies, came from Psalm 22. If we were to look more closely at Psalm 22, we would see that there are quite a few more ways that Jesus brings that particular psalm to fulfillment. In his crucifixion. It begins with the agonized cry. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Which the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus uttered on the cross. In Psalm 22 and verse 8. We read of the mocking of Jesus by passers-by. Recorded for us in the other gospels. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. If he delights in him. Again, recorded for us in the other Gospels. In Psalm 22 and verse 16, we read, They have pierced my hands and feet. Written at a time before Roman crucifixion was even invented. And yet, an obvious allusion to the cross when read in the light of later biblical Revelation and the remarkable correspondence between Psalm 22 and the crucifixion of Christ. I mention these only, there's, there's even more in Psalm 22, but I mention these only to bring out the point that there are even more fulfillments of Scripture in the death of Jesus than John points out here specifically in John chapter 19 and um, all these verses I just mentioned. John isn't trying to exhaustively show us all the ways that Jesus fulfills Scripture in his death. As John himself acknowledges in John chapter 21 and verse 25, 
He didn't write down everything for us, nor could he have. Quote, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. End quote. This is an important concept because it gives us warrant to connect the death of Jesus to even more Old Testament prophecies than are explicitly stated, whether in John or in Matthew, Mark or Luke or brought out in one of the epistles. If we can see it in the scripture, obviously with a certain measure of constraint, it has to be demonstrable. But we realize that, that not everything was written down explicitly. John tells us that. As I alluded to earlier, Jesus' placement between the two thieves on the cross, for example, fulfills Isaiah 53 and verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. It's not a wild fanciful interpretation. Isaiah 53 is a well-known passage speaking of the suffering of Christ. And we read that he was numbered with the transgressors. And we see that he was crucified between two convicted criminals. As Jesus died, the people were digesting the Passover lamb that they had eaten on the previous night. It's this week of the Passover in which this man who is called for us in the Scriptures, the Lamb of God, was slain. We can see then that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. That sacrifice made on behalf of God's people so that God's wrath could justly pass over us if indeed the blood of the Lamb has been applied to our doorposts, so to speak. Again, this is not wild and fanciful interpretation. We look at what the Old Testament Scriptures tell us and we look at the life and the death of Jesus And we put two and two together. We're allowed to do that. We ought to do that. Remember Jesus taught us in John chapter 5. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But But they testify of me. It's the hermeneutic. The controlling principle of biblical interpretation that Jesus gives us. That everything centers around Him in responsible ways with some constraints. Not wild, fanciful, allegorical interpretations of every small detail as we're going through in the Old Covenant series. I haven't seen any compelling case for what the clasps holding the curtain up in the tabernacle signify spiritually, though many have tried. There's a point at which we need to use some constraint. But responsibly, with some constraint, we ought to be seeing all of Scripture 
as centering on and driving towards and being fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So no, Jesus' suffering was not an accident, nor was it a triumph of evil over good. It was the plan and the purpose of God that the scriptures might be fulfilled. As the disciples pray, just a matter of weeks after the crucifixion in Acts chapter 4, when they're encountering some difficulty and they pray for boldness, they say in Acts 4, 27 and 28, Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So what was happening as Jesus died? God's plan and purpose was being fulfilled. Which means that Jesus was not a victim, but a conqueror. It was by His death and because of His death that He completed the work that the Father gave Him to do, fulfilling the terms of His Messiahship. So that, therefore, He would be as the Old Testament Scriptures tell us He would be in Daniel chapter 7, given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And it was in and by Jesus' death that He was populating that kingdom. According to Isaiah 53, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Which means we looked at the cross and we didn't get it. We thought He was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Ah, but now we see, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Oh, we get it now. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep had gone astray. We had turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. You see, all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and His work were being brought to fulfillment by Jesus' death on the cross. It is in this comprehensive sense then that Jesus says, It is finished! Everything written about the Messiah and His work in the Old Testament was being brought to its fulfillment as Jesus finished His earthly work. This is Jesus crossing the finish line in first place. 
it is finished. It's not training for the Olympics. It's not halfway through a race, hoping you can finish strong. It's the cry of someone who has crossed the line and won. It's done. It's over. It is finished. History cannot be changed. So and so is the gold medalist. Jesus has conquered. It's no longer an open question. It is finished. Jesus' messianic work, his Christly work, Christ and Messiah are synonymous terms, you realize. His messianic work, his Christly work is finished. Now all the promises of God may find their yes in him. As 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20 puts it. Let's make some applications. First, you, each and every one of you, like a sheep, has gone astray. You have turned, everyone, to your own way. So have I. So have I. Has the Lord laid on Jesus your iniquity? No question could be more important for you to consider this morning. Has anything been done about your sin? If not, you must be stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted for your own sin. But there is a substitute. One who, in my place, condemned, he stood. And who, in your place, condemned, will stand. If you will, but ask him to. Tell him, I need a savior. Cry out to him. Ask him to take you as his own and to plead his merits and his blood before his father. And he will gladly do it. As we sang just a week or two ago, can't remember specifically what week it was, but sang that song, Jesus sinners does receive. This taunt that the religious people of that day made against Jesus. Ah, he eats and he drinks with sinners. And Jesus basically doubles down and tells them three stories in a row to the effect like, oh yeah, I do. In fact, I joyfully receive sinners. I'm glad when I, found, when I find the lost coin. I'm glad when I go get a sheep that's strayed. I'm glad when a son comes home from living in a far country and squandering his property with reckless living and finds himself destitute among the pigs. I'm so glad that I'll run to the end of the driveway to meet him. Jesus, sinners, does receive. If you have never trusted in Christ Jesus, listen, it doesn't have to be a process. It could just be now. You don't need to understand everything about the Bible. You just need to understand that it's true what I just said. That all we like sheep has gone astray. And you just need to understand that it's true. 
that the Lord has laid on him. The iniquity of us all. Just take that to the bank. And then start, start learning, start growing. That's the beginning. That's not the end of the process. That's the beginning of the process of new life in Christ. So I would really urge you, plead with you to take that step today if you have not. That's our first point of application. Second, I want you to consider the certainty of God's promises based on this passage. And this is for all of us really, even if you're outside of Christ and thinking about trusting in Him, but what will happen to me? But this is also for you who are already trusting in Christ. Whose sins have already been laid upon that land. Consider, all of you, the certainty of God's promises. In Psalm 15 and verse 4, we read that God accepts and approves of those who swear to their own hurt and do not change. In other words, God loves it when we keep our promises even when it is inconvenient and detrimental to ourselves to do so. So when you promise someone that you're going to help them move, and then you realize that your favorite sports team is playing that night, but you say, I made a promise, and I'm going to keep it, and you have sworn to your own hurt and do not change your mind, God loves that. God approves of that. And obviously we can think of more severe and serious things, like when you make a commitment to somebody for better or worse, and it ends up being for worse. And you spend decades of your life keeping that promise. We can think of a number of ways in which you could swear to your own hurt. In other words, make a promise that ends up being detrimental for you to keep. And you do it anyway. God loves that. God approves of that. That's what that verse in Psalm 15 and verse 4 is telling us. The temptation is to back out of something we've promised when we come to realize how much it will cost us, right? With that in mind, look at God keeping His Word at the cross. Remember that it all happened according to the Scriptures. Here is God the Father and God the Son, both and together with the Spirit, of course, willingly embracing the cross, keeping promises, even though it was to their own hurt, so to speak. Jesus is God's beloved Son in whom He is well pleased. Jesus agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But though the Father must see His Son suffer, and though the Son must lay down His life and undergo all of this pain that we describe, even just on a human level, and then on top of that, bearing the wrath of God for sin. Our 
Our triune God swore to his own hurt and did not change. He kept a promise even when it was difficult and inconvenient as it were detrimental in some sense to do so. Listen here. If God will bring the events of Calvary to pass in order to keep His promises, then surely we know that there is no length to which God will not go to keep His promises. If there ever was a time that God may have changed His mind and balked at following through and reneged on His promise, it would have been as Jesus prayed in the garden in agony, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Right there, if there was ever a time that God would have said, you know what? Nah, I'm not following through on this. That would have been it. But God swore to his own hurt and did not change. The cross is a wonderful event already accomplished by God keeping his word. That's one thing that according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures teaches us that God kept his promises. But the cross is also wonderful assurance that God will continue to keep his word based on the logic that I just laid out before. If God would even do this to keep his word, God will stop at nothing to keep his word. Those ancient words recorded for us in scripture then are, as we sang, ever true. So trust in Jesus for salvation from your sin. And trust Him to return one day as He said He would. One day, as the Scriptures tell us, we will see Him come as we saw Him go. Acts chapter 1. We will see the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. Revelation chapter 11. Yes, we will see His kingdom come. And His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew chapter 6. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lamb of God for sinners slain. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It was a destined day. God rules over all. God brings His promises to pass. There was a destined day and there are more destined days. And God will bring His purposes to pass according to the Scriptures.